Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans. And today I'm talking with our first guest to be on the show three times. And that's because she's always got something new happening. Since 2016, Erin Napier and her husband, Ben, have starred in the hit TV show, Hometown, where they renovate historic properties in and around Laurel, Mississippi. Last year, I talked to the couple about renovating a place in the country where their daughters could spend more time outdoors. Now, Erin is channeling her passion for old homes into a personal new book called Heirloom Rooms. Just like the author, the book is down-to-earth, full of stories, very thoughtful, and totally unpretentious. We'll talk about what inspired the project, her memories of homes throughout her life, and her new nonprofit designed to keep children off social media on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Well, Aaron Napier, welcome back to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks, Sid. Thank you for inviting me again. Great to see you. How's Ben doing? He's good. He is in the wood shop right now building something for one of our homeowners. As usual. This is the second time I have done a thing by myself, a book. First, it was a children's book and now a book for grownups. So this is big doings. Well, I'm glad to have you by yourself, and I'm especially glad to be talking about this book, which is really beautiful. I mean, it's beautifully designed, beautifully written, and I've got to say, in a world of countless home books, it feels really unique. Yeah, that's the biggest compliment you could give it. Publishers Weekly called it unpretentious, and that is... Such a great word and exactly what I want people to feel about this book. I feel like there's a lot of home design books that feel just unattainable. And also, I don't care about seeing pictures of things that are perfect. I'm way more interested in the realness of how we live in our houses. Yeah. I mean, that comes through in every page. And the book is called Heirloom Rooms, which sounds like it could easily be your life story. Mm -hmm. You've spent so much of your career working on heirloom rooms. But tell me how you came up with the title. My best friend did. I couldn't think of what I wanted to call this book. And Mallory was like, heirloom rooms. So (laughs) Mallory Raspberry 100% gets the credit because this may be a deep dive. But the book cover shows a picture of me framed on a wallpapered wall, right? We will one day be the people in the frames on the wall. And that's one kind of memory we need to be making. We need to be framing pictures of ourselves looking perfect. But then (laughs) you take the cover off and you see the messiness that was really there. And I want us to celebrate that. 
We need to be able to live in a season of messiness and busyness. And when you're raising little kids, that's all you got, a season of messiness. Well, I've been through that season and I'm still in it and I don't think I'll ever get out of it. But I love that. I love how real and relatable it all is. And I also got to say, I love the quote from your daughter, Helen, on the back. (laughs) So you had three quotes on the back and she said something like, you know, how much she loved the book. And then she said, I'm trying to eat dinner right now, mom, or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Have you ever read Bossy Pants by Tina Fey? I can't say I have, no. Well, it is one of the funniest books I've ever read, but she had advanced praise on the back. And one of them was from, I think, her dad or her mom. And they were like, my God, you're going to use that picture for the cover? That's terrible. (laughs) And I thought, that is so unpretentious. Because it's what they actually said. Yeah, that's what they actually said. I love it. So yeah, I borrowed an idea from Tina Fey there. Well, it's great. You know, we've talked about your hometown and your story and where you grew up. So I'm not going to go over all that. And what I'd really like to do is just kind of follow the book and talk about different rooms in your life and in Mm. your memory. How does that sound? Amazing. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So you start out talking about your grandparents' house, which was this kind of old brick ranch. Mm -hmm. And there are some photographs of the house that you took in 2015. And I guess this was their second house. Mm -hmm. What are some of your strongest memories of that house? Oh, man. Once I was in college... I would come home once a month from Ole Miss, and I would always, always go to my grandmother's house. By then, my grandfather had passed away in 2001, so she was on her own, but tough, you know? She was just happy and still productive, working in her garden and cooking big meals before she had the stroke. She had seven years where she was alone without my grandfather, and she was just really healthy and really strong. And I would go and we would sit on her screened in back porch that was surrounded by roses and four o'clocks. They wrapped all the way around that porch. And she would always have a half gallon of sweet tea and a glass pitcher in the fridge with a little tin foil over the top. And she would pour it for everybody who was coming over. I didn't even drink tea, never have liked it. I know that's unsouthern of me, but I would drink it because I was at her house and she would sit in her chair by the patio table and everybody else had to sit in the white rocking chairs and we would talk about life. I'd tell her everything that was happening at school, everything that was happening with Ben and she just adored him. And I loved our time on that back porch. It was consistent and it was important. And that's the thing that I miss the most about that house for sure. And this is Weta, right? Yep, Weta. I have a candle in the scent library that's named after her. Weta's garden. It's because of the four o'clocks and roses. That's what it smells like. You know, there's a great line in there where you say that your grandmother wasn't pictured in all the photographs, but she's there in every one. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering what you mean by that. You know, what do you mean when you look at a picture of that kitchen, for example, what do you see? Where do you see her? 
her canisters that she used my whole life that held the flour and the sugar. And every recipe started by pulling those canisters out from the wall. And the dish towel, the knowing that the slop bucket is under the sink and the cabinet on the right, she would scrape the scraps into that bucket and then take it out to the chickens. Every picture I can see how she lived in her house, which is a lot like seeing an image of her doing it, you know, seeing her little size five shoes and the chair just a little askew where she had just gotten up. Yeah. Size five. Boy, those are some She's a little bitty lady. (laughs) Yeah. She's a tiny lady. (laughs) What are some things that you have in common with her, especially when it comes to homes? I'm the biscuit maker. I'm the one that knows how to do it. She taught me and nobody else. So there's that. She was musical. She was creative. And I want to be like her in every way possible. My mom sent pictures just last week. It was my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. She found pictures from the day I was born, the hospital pictures. And one of them, I'm going to show you. My grandmother, Weta, sitting in the waiting room, waiting for me to be born. Oh, wow. What a great picture. She was just elegant, you know, and not in a super Jackie O sort of way, but in a chic, southern, not super fancy sort of way. Can you describe that picture? Yeah, she was wearing like a white sleeveless blouse and she had on some slacks and little white sandals and her purse just prim and proper holding it in her lap. She was just elegant and she was tough and funny. And her house, even after she was gone, it felt like I could still be with her if I could go there. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about houses. They're a little bit our people, too. The people that made those rooms, they're still there even when they're gone. Well, and it sounds like the photographs that you took of that house really were kind of an inspiration for the book. Yes, 100%. Her house would never be featured in a magazine, you know? It would never be featured in Southern Living Magazine. And she had a stack of Southern Living Magazines in her house. She's your longest subscriber, had to be. But that's not what made her house wonderful. It was not about the way that it looked. It was the way that we felt when we were in it. And I thought about what if something happens and I don't have photos of this house. I need photos of this house. The house where my parents lived when I was born, my grandparents built that house as well. And then I was five or six when we moved out. I could draw the floor plan, but I only can find two or three photos. And it makes me sad that we didn't think it was important to photograph the rooms in our houses. I just found one an hour ago at my mama's house of the living room. That was really exciting. I freaked out. But I have this serious urge and desire to catalog and save and find any images of these houses that I can. Because once they're not our houses anymore, you can't go back. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about another house, and that's your house in town in Laurel. Where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. And I especially want to ask you about the front porch specifically, which is really how you got to know the house before you lived in it. I love that you said that if the house were 
of food. <laughs> it would be a yellow coconut cake with white icing. Yes. Which is a great way to describe it. So what is it about that porch and the front of the house that has always had some magic for you? In seventh grade, we would drive past this house on the way to the grocery store or wherever, and I would say, gosh, I love that house. And then I drew a picture of it sometime around ninth grade. I went and sat across the street and drew it. I don't know what I did with that drawing. I can't find it anywhere. But then once Ben and I got married and we would go on long walks, we'd walk past this house and say, "Mm, one day I want that house. The thing I love about it, there are two streets in downtown Laurel that are very historic, where the grand, big founders' houses were built. And this is an unassuming street between those, and it's tucked back, and it's just so unassuming, and it had so many great shadows. The eaves, the rafter tails, the columns, the everything about it. It had so it was rich with detail. And anyway, I was just obsessed with it. And then one day we were on a walk and we saw Miss Mary Lynn sweeping the front porch. And we we're like, wait, do you live here? Because she went to church with us sat two rows ahead of us, and I had never put together that this is where she lived. And I was like, oh my gosh, Miss Mary Lynn, I have been obsessed with this house since I was a child. She was like, come on in. Y'all come walk around. (laughs) And so we did. And then when we were leaving, I just offhandedly said, if you ever want to sell this house, you just let us know. And I was kidding. I couldn't afford to buy a house. And she called us two days later and was like, I want you to buy my house. So we bought her house and I've just loved it. I've loved it since I was a kid and I will never let it go. Never. What year was that, Aaron? When we bought the house, it was 2010 and we moved in 2011. Yeah. So I want to move inside and tell me a little bit about the living room. You're not a believer in a fussy living room or kind of stuffy living room that no one ever uses. Mm -hmm. What was the living room that you really wanted for your girls and your family and how'd you create it? I had been collecting in a folder since I was in junior high pictures from Southern Living, Cottage Living, Coastal Living, and all these images. It was the same, the taste that I've always had, which is like these great creamy rooms that glow, lots of lamps, but then heavy, dark wood furniture and really soft, rumpled linen sofas. It's just been something I've been attracted to since I was 12 years old. And so this house, I just leaned into that. I think it's going to always be something that I love. And at some point, years before Miss Mary Lynn bought this house, someone painted all the trim. It would have had so much dark stained wood in this old craftsman, and somebody painted it all. And so we had to just roll with that. I couldn't afford to strip all the paint. So I let it be soft and bright and and glowy, but very, very comfortable. There are rumpled denim sofas everywhere in the house, and it's real kid-friendly, most of all. You can throw them in the washing machine and it always comes clean. You mentioned the color and this is a random question, but I wanted to ask you about this color white that you talk about several times. It's called Dover white. What is it about that color that you love? And when did you kind of discover that? 
I found it when we started renovating this house when we bought it in 2010. But of all the whites that I kept trying out, this was the only one that glows kind of golden. And in some light, it gets a little bit green. You can't see it, but this side of the wall looks a little green right now. And then this side is more of a pure white. So as the light changes, this paint is a chameleon. It changes with it. And I love colors that do that. Not all colors do. It has to have a certain amount of yellow, a dinginess in the paint that makes it do that. But it's the perfect white. So anytime I use white on a trim or a wall or whatever, all the other colors have to work with Dover white. It is <laughs> my only white. <laughs> and if they don't, If it out. doesn't work, we're changing the color. <laughs> um, so Aaron, is this the room where y'all have celebrated holidays in your house? In the living room? Yeah. Yeah. There is the best memory, the Christmas two or three weeks before Helen was born. We almost had a white Christmas. It snowed. And I mean, a big, big, big snow in Laurel, like December 10th-ish. And I have this photo of our house and the Christmas tree in the corner. And we didn't yet have Helen. She was not born yet. She was almost here. And snow was falling. I might never get another photo like that again, you know? I really may never have a photo like that. It may never snow in December. Um, but that one time it did. It was so cool to feel like I lived in Connecticut or something, you know? <laughs> but it's a very good Christmas house. Yeah, you're not going to get many of those in Laurel, Mississippi, mm -hmm. I don't think. You're not. After the break, I'll talk more with Erin Napier about her new book and her new nonprofit called Osprey. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with HGTV star and author Aaron Napier. So, Aaron, there's one story in this book that's a little scary, and that's when the tornado came through Laurel. Was that 2020? 2019. 2019. And I'm wondering if you could just share that story and how it kind of changed the way that you think about a home. Yeah. You know, we have tornado warnings all the time, but they don't normally come that close. And so... We were cooking dinner. I had a roasted rosemary chicken in the oven, and Ben's little brother and his wife were coming over to eat with us. Helen was almost two, and the tornado siren started going off. We knew bad weather was coming. I said, well, we'll go get in the closet under the stairs right there, and as soon as we got in and closed the door, we could feel the house it felt alive in a way that really scared me. You don't want to hear your house move and creak and pop, but it also felt sturdy. It felt like, okay, it's fixing to do its job and it's going to protect us. It's going to shelter us. 
and it did. We could hear glass breaking, but we knew that the house was holding steady. And then it was over so fast. And we ran in there. We didn't have power, but the front windows in our living room had been busted out by debris. The Christmas tree was a mess. The ornaments, a lot of them got broken. And Helen was like, what happened? She wasn't exactly scared, but she she knew something serious had happened. And so it had been so hot. You know, when we have tornadoes in December in the South, it's very, very, very hot when that happens. And as soon as it had passed through, it got so cold. And everybody was outside in the dark trying to help each other. Is everybody okay? We went and stayed the night at my parents' house because we didn't have electricity for a couple days. But it was scary. It was a close call. But Our house was ultimately fine. It only busted out a couple windows. And it was just sad to see this neighborhood with so many historic houses losing their chimneys. Huge trees got uprooted in a few areas, but it could have been worse. Yeah. I'm really thankful it wasn't worse. Didn't Helen say something like... um, That thunder's getting me. Yeah. Hmm. She's was really scared of thunder for a long, long time after that. She thought it was thunder. We were like, no, babe, it's not thunder. It's wind. And no matter what it was, it was scary when it was happening. Yeah. I'll move to a happier topic, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask about all the friends and family that contributed to this book. I mean, there are photographs from lots of people that you're connected to, and they all feel very personal, almost as if you just happened upon them, like they weren't expecting company and you walked in and the house is a little messy, but it feels very lived in. So I'm just wondering what were your instructions to these folks when it came to the pictures? I said, I want you to self-photograph the rooms in your house. And I don't want you to worry about making it perfect. This is not a photo shoot for a magazine. This is documenting the way you really live in your house. And my tips would be turn off all artificial light, only use natural light, and try to shoot straight on. And we'll have a little consistency if we can all do that. And I was so impressed. Some of them struggled with it. I'm going to tell you, there's two or three in the book who were like, yeah, girl, I got you. I I won't change a thing. (laughs) And I got the pictures, I was like, yeah, you you changed a few things. Yeah, you made it look pretty good. <laughs> My contributors are amazing. They really sent me beautiful, beautiful photos, and they gave me very thoughtful answers to the questions that I asked. So I had to interview every one of them, and a couple of them have moved out of these houses that they wrote about, which was probably kind of difficult. They were probably in the process of getting ready to move when I'm asking questions like, what would you miss about this house if you left it? But they dug deep and they gave me such good insight into the way we all feel about our houses, like their family. Well, it all feels very consistent. It almost feels like the whole thing was shot by the same photographer. They look very much of a piece, like they're coming from the same place. Well, I should say every house in Laurel my photographer, Brooke Davis Jeffcoat, actually went and took those because a lot of our homeowners were just like, I don't feel confident in taking a picture. And I was like, if Brooke can come, I will send her. So, 
Yeah, she's been taking photos of me since my wedding day. And so now she works for us full time and she's documented every major event in my life since Ben and I got married. So I wanted her to be the photographer for the book. I wish I could have sent her to everyone's house. She probably would have loved to go on that great big vacation. But if they lived further than an hour away, I had them self-photograph it. Well, kudos to Brooke. She did a beautiful job. She and did, and, yeah. and I think, you know, so did everybody that took their own. They really did. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the bedroom for a second. So you've got a chapter about bedrooms and there's a great description of your nightstands in there and how each one of them represents you and Ben. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, my nightstand, it has a neat stack of a few books, has my earplugs in a little porcelain holder. It's got my little noisemaker and a a journal, and it has the baby monitor, and that's it. And on Ben's side, his whole life is dumped out on his nightstand. (laughs) It's like 20 books, broken screws keys to something no one knows to what a duke university pencils he's very superstitious about if he's going to use a pencil it must be a duke university pencil because that's what he did in high school when he would make the best grades on his test it was be the duke pencils did better you see his superstition and his boyishness he's a 40-year-old man, but you see what a boy he really is <laughs> on his <laughs> nightstand which i love I love that. He has three catch-alls, all of them slammed full of stuff. But that's who he is. He's a fixer. He has like a million broken things. And he's like, I'm going to fix that. (laughs) Well, y'all must have some good-sized nightstands because it sounds like there's a lot of stuff on them. They're dressers. Yeah. That happen to be positioned (laughs) like nightstands. Yeah. So one more room. You said somewhere in the book that of all the rooms in the house, the kitchen feels like it belongs to your friends. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea. What are some of the ways that you like to make a kitchen feel welcoming and comfortable? Well, I invite people over while I'm still cooking. And I think that's an important part of the process. There is nowhere to sit and hang out. And yet that's where we all hang out when people come over. They'll say, what time do you want us to come over? And I'll be like, 5.30. Dinner won't be ready till 6.30. But I like to visit while I cook. And because of that, Mallory comes at 5.30. She knows, you know, I'm going to make a salad. Where's the colander? I'll wash the lettuce. You get to know your friend's kitchens that way. And I know where everything is in her kitchen, and she knows where everything is in mine. And that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a kind of marriage and a commitment we have to each other. I can go in her kitchen. I can put up her clean dishes out of the dishwasher if I want to. So, yeah, it does belong to our friends. Well, and now you have a kind of keeping room, you Mm -hmm. call it, in your country place. Yeah. And that's kind of like a sitting room right off the kitchen that is a little unusual. You don't see that many of those. And that's the main room we live in there. We hardly ever go in the big living room. We just hang out in there. You hang out in that kitchen. Yeah. When someone's cooking, that's just where you hang out. You know, there's a line that struck me kind of early in the book. You're trying to capture all these rooms and all these 
different homes. And it said, when you can't remember all the details of a house, it's almost like you're forgetting the eye color of a relative. Like it really does matter that you remember those details. And you were talking earlier about feeling compelled to document homes. I mean, is that what's driving you? Like you really just need to be able Mm -hmm. to remember all these spaces. I need to desperately. This is manifesting in all sorts of ways, but I've kept a journal every single day since 2010. It used to be online, but now I write it. So it's just in a paper journal that the girls can have all of them one day. But it's very important to me. It feels almost like if we don't document it, did it happen? And I need proof that it did. So I journal. I like to photograph. I've photographed almost every nook and cranny of my mom and dad's house because if they ever get rid of it, I want to be able to go back in some way. I actually just got off the phone with my mother-in-law and tried to call my mom to say, I'm going to gather up all our family photos. You get them all in a big box for me. I'm going to digitize them all, and we are going to catalog them by year. So we will all have access to it, and we'll know exactly where it all is. It's just really important to me for some reason, and a, a major part of my personality is documenting. Yeah. Well, and you're also doing that through hometown, and you're doing it through hometown takeover. I wanted to just ask you about one house in particular, and that was the big fish house that you did on hometown takeover. You've done so many different houses, and every one, I'm sure, has a lot of meaning, but that was a pretty major project. It's a significant house in that town, mm-hmm. um, and it's a significant house because of this film. Mm-hmm. What did it mean to you to work on that project? Man, Big Fish is my favorite movie of all time. And I mean, I can recite the whole thing for you. And that really is because Edward Bloom was my grandfather. He looked like that. He told stories like that. Everybody had a story with my grandfather. And when it came out in 2001, I guess it was probably the year after he had passed away. And I saw it in the theater and it was like getting to spend two hours with him again. Just to be with him again was so cool. And then my dad watched it and he was like, I can't do this. This is weird. It was emotional for him. And so it's just a really important movie to me. And then when HGTV said, we're thinking about Wetumpka, I was so excited. But I was like, I am only going to Wetumpka if we can do that house. Please tell me we can do that house. And they said, yeah, I think the owners would love to fix it up, Shelly and Wade. And just getting to walk inside and see, you know, I'm a part of making a TV show every day. I understand that there are like tricks and things they have to do to make lighting look realistic, even when it's not really there. But walking into a house that was a movie set is a whole new level of, I mean, you think you're looking at brick skirting around the house and it was plastic. It was so strange how these things that I thought and took for granted as real were not real at all. <laughs> And so we had to then make it real, but look like it did in the movie. And it was so much fun. It was one of the coolest things we've ever gotten to do. Mm. And do it in a pretty short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have long. 
Well, I'm going to veer away from Homes for a minute, and I just want to ask you about the nonprofit that you and Ben started, which is so cool. It's called Osprey, and my understanding is it's all about helping parents find ways to keep their kids off of social media or to limit their use of social media. Tell me a little bit about that and some of the reaction and the feedback that you've gotten from other parents. Yes. Osprey stands for Old School Parents Raising Engaged Youth. It's something that us and all of our best friends were doing anyway. We all started having kids and then we all were in agreement like, man, I really don't want them to be addicted to screens and the internet. I mean, you see the depression that's happening in young girls because of social media. Like, let's just don't do that. But it only works if they have a community of friends who are also not on social media. And so that's what Osprey was really born from was the thought that we need to foster elementary age. This is the key part before social media even exists in their world to help them build social lives without social media. And then those parents and families can make decisions together related to tech. And that is the only way I think our kids can get through this and feel supported and not like, I'm the weird one that doesn't have a phone. I'm the only one. Everybody has one but me. Helen's not going to be able to say that. May is not going to be able to say that because literally none of their cousins or friends are going to have that. The oldest of the kids in the group just turned 10. And the parents are like, what do we do? They're turning 10. They're playing sports, need a way to get in touch with us. What do we as a group want to do? And we all decided when they turn 10, they can get a watch that can call and text and that's it. And we're like, great, that's what we're doing. And then they all feel supported and not weird. That's the main thing. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure to get that phone. Yeah. Tons. And I think if you can normalize a different way when they're young, that maybe it'll stick. So that's the experiment. It was exactly 20 years ago when Mark Zuckerberg was in his dorm room at Harvard coming up with the idea for Facebook. That's when I was starting my freshman year of college too. And so now I see, we're just a generation where we can see how we lived without it. We got it in college and thank God, not any sooner. I know for sure it would have been terrible for me to have that when I was a teenager. It just would have yeah. crushed me. Criticism from people would have crushed me when I was 15, 16 years old. Well, and it's a lot less time that you're going to spend creating things or, yeah. you know, playing sports or just being outside. I wouldn't have that accordion folder of magazine clippings if I had been busy on social media. And <laughs> we own multiple companies. We're always hiring young people fresh out of college. It's getting harder and harder to find college age people who can have a conversation. Yes. Who can yeah. speak and talk. It's not their fault. They were just raised in a different time. You remember when we were growing up and they were trying to get kids to stop smoking and they would send that black lung around. Did you see that black lung? I remember. Yeah. <laughs> that black lung left a mark. I think we're about to start seeing the black lung of social media. And I think it's going to become more and more commonplace because the day that I just mentioned vaguely I want to build a community of kids who are social media free. I got 20,000 parents who immediately signed up for the email list. That's 20,000 across the country where we could potentially start these communities of kids who are just a little bit more analog, who are back to the basics, who are making accordion folders of pretty houses and 
you know, the argument I hear is, well, you don't want them to be the weirdo. They've got to know how to function in the modern world. It takes about 24 hours to catch up and learn everything you need to know about how to use social media. You can give it to them on graduation day and they'll know how to use it the next day. A girl in our church who grew up without it, she went to the New York Ballet in the summers and the Philadelphia Ballet after that and traveled the world. She just doesn't even want it now. She's She's got interests and self-assurance. And that's something I see less and less of in kids who are trapped in this social media bubble where it's not real. You're just in this weird echo chamber of people telling you how you're supposed to think and do and feel. And I just don't think kids are ready for it. I really don't. Yeah. And whether you get likes or not and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody would have liked my accordion folder. Tell you that. (laughs) And it would have hurt my feelings. (laughs) Well, it's a great thing y'all are doing, and I I love seeing it, and I hope it continues to grow. Thanks. I hope so. Thank you for asking about that. Well, Erin, I just want to ask one last thing, and it's about the house outside of town, your kind of country house, and Mm. we ran a story about it in the magazine last fall. You've been in the house for a while now. Mm -hmm. You've kind of really lived in it and gotten to know it. What's become your favorite room in the house And why? Mm -hmm. It's the keeping room where everybody sits while I cook and Helen does homework and Mae does her little drawings and paintings. And I mean, we really live in like 500 square feet, that kitchen and keeping room. That's where all the action is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Aaron Napier, thanks for being back on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you so much, Sid. I really appreciate you wanting to talk about this book. It's really special to me. Thank you. Well, it's just beautifully done. So congrats. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Aaron Napier. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with the one and only Lucinda Williams. We'll see you then. Thank you.